So if you've been with us at all this year at Scottsdale Bible, even if you haven't, you're going to dial in very quickly. Uh, we've been focusing on grace, this idea of grace. In fact, this is the end of our fourth series on grace that we have done this year. We've talked about grace and God, grace and family, grace and our church, and then spent the last couple of months talking about grace and our community out there, grace and your neighbor. And today, we wrap up the whole thing by talking about probably something that is most dear to God's heart, and that's grace and those in material need, or the poor. There's over 2,000 passages in the Old and New Testament in which God shares his heart when it comes to the poor and those in need and what his followers need to do about it. And in one sense, no community is probably more primed to talk about the poor than Scottsdale. Because the reality is, is that it's no secret that we've been blessed beyond measure when it comes to material things in this world. And so I believe God would shine his light on those of us living in this town who call ourselves followers of him to be first in line to help minister to those in need. And as I thought about it over the last couple of weeks, I thought, you know, well, where do you start? I mean, thousands of passages in the Bible talking about the poor. How do you, in 30 minutes, which is about what we have left, give any kind of a cogent theology, workable and livable, on the poor? And what hit me over the last few weeks is that maybe we should just focus for our purposes this morning on what Jesus says. Can we do that? Let's just limit ourselves, but it won't be limiting, to what the Son of God, when he came into this world, told us about the poor and our role in ministering to them. And to do this today, I simply want to focus on two aspects of Jesus' life, what he showed us in the life that he lived, and then what he taught us in the words that he said. So if you can follow that simple outline uh, up here on the PowerPoint, you're, you're going to dial in today to what Jesus wants us to know about those in need. And so let's begin by looking at what Jesus shows us in his life and actions. And so here is a very clear and simple thing that comes right from the historical records themselves, the Bible, and that is that he prioritized those in need, and I would add, a lot. Well, let's start very simple, folks. What does Jesus teach us about the poor around us? Well, he prioritized them in his short three years of ministry on this earth, and one could argue, a lot. If you brought a Bible with you this morning, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. If you didn't bring a Bible, you can use your pew Bible. In fact, I'll make it so easy for you, page 816 in your pew bible open up your pew bible page 816 or your own bible matthew 11 or you can look up here on the screen and and matthew 11 i'm going to begin reading at verse 1 and then up through verse 5 and see if you can pick up as i read here on what jesus shows us about the poor <clears throat> it says when jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities now when John, John the Baptist, heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them." So, as many of us know, John the Baptist was a forerunner to Jesus Christ. <clears throat> he was once sent by God, God to pave the way for the coming of the Son of God into this world. 
And so John preached a, a baptism of repentance. He called people to repentance. He called them to focus on God and spiritual things. And yet, as some of us remember from Sunday school class, uh, the religious leaders and the secular leaders didn't receive John very well. They didn't like what he had to say to them because he was kind of upsetting their basket cart. And so eventually, John made his way into prison. And way back in Matthew chapter 4, we find John in prison because he had shined a light on Herod's illicit affair with his brother's wife. And so here in Matthew 11, John is still in jail, and he's wondering if Jesus is really the Messiah, the one sent from God to bring us back to God through his death on a cross for our sins. And in John's mind, Jesus had started out really well. I mean, he was at his baptism and heard his initial preaching. But now John himself is in jail, and that was unexpected. And Jesus is hanging out with a lot of undesirables, People like Matthew, the tax collector, and unknown fishermen like James and John. And so John the Baptist sends a couple of his disciples to Jesus. Luke tells us it was two of them. And he says, are you really the one that we should expect? Because I'm kind of in, but I'm also wondering, are you really the one sent from God? And the answer that Jesus gives to John is nothing less than revealing both to John as well as to you and me today in light of our topic. Look again at verses 4 and 5. It says, And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. And so he's quoting Jesus' Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, where he's trying to bring John's expectations in light or in line with the biblical witness. He mentions his miracles and his healings, which Jesus had been doing in Matthew chapters 8 and 9. And then he mentions how he's been hanging around the poor, giving them the gospel. And that word poor here, I looked it up, literally means, now don't miss this, <clears throat> the poor. It literally means those who have not. Some people tend to try to read Matthew 5, 3 into this and say, well, it must have meant the poor in spirit. No, it literally means the poor. It's the Greek word tokos. And, and it means a beggar, a pauper, one who is without physical and material things. It's a poor person. And one of the signs that the Old Testament gave us that Jesus would be Jesus is that he would hang around these folks. And so don't miss, all of this was in light or in line with the messianic expectations laid out in the Old Testament that the Messiah would give sight to the blind and heal the lame and lepers and give the deaf the ability to hear and hang around with the poor as he would preach good news to them. And what we need to realize before we go any further with this this morning, folks, is that this general witness that Jesus gives here to John is indicative of the exact lifestyle that Jesus lived. In other words, this was not just one big oops, I think I'll hang around the poor right now, but what you're seeing here is actually indicative of the lifestyle that Jesus lived, i.e. hanging around the poor. I mean, to be sure, the disciples he chose, most of them were not rich. They were kind of lower on the economic ladder. Jesus hung around poor women. He hung around people labeled sinners, which were social outcasts and the not the economic elite. I mean, please see, Jesus lived a lifestyle of ministry to the poor. Not exclusively, I need to be fair. I mean, he did have some wealthy and some powerful friends. We know that. But one thing you can't miss 
in the midst of all that Jesus said and did is that he accomplished much of what he accomplished in the presence and fellowship of those with obvious material needs, what we would call the poor. And so once you get this, the question you and I should be asking, because it's the $10 question, is why? I mean, why is it that Jesus made such a point to hang around with those in need? Why did Jesus do so much of his ministry in and around the poor? What was it that would cause him to function this way? And the answer to this question is contained in the second thing that we need to look at today, and that is what Jesus teaches us. Because Jesus actually tells us, he doesn't leave us wondering in his teachings why he felt so compelled to hang around the poor and those in need. And though, as I said earlier, you could classify all the things that Jesus in the Bible tells us about the poor in numerous ways because it's all over the place. For our sake this morning, I want you to simply notice three things that Jesus tells us about the poor that I believe will have everything to do with what you and I do from this point on. Three reasons that Jesus gives of why he lived a lifestyle among the poor. And here's the first one. And that is that the poor you will always have with you. In other words, there's, they're going to be around till Christ comes again. So keep them in your sights. The poor you will always have with you with you. We'll unpack this in a second, so keep them in your sights. And folks, I would submit to you that this is an important truth that has far-reaching implications for you and I today. Now, to best understand this, I want you to look at something that happened much later in Jesus's ministry than the text we just looked at before. This is something that happened just before his arrest and trial and crucifixion, and it's recorded in Matthew chapter 26. So if you're still in Matthew there, just open up to, or flip over a few pages to chapter 26, and we're going to begin reading here in a few minutes at verse 10. But the whole setting is contained in verses 6 through 11, and Jesus is now in Bethany, which is a city just south of Jerusalem there. And again, he's getting toward the end of his ministry, and he's at the home of a poor person, a leper. And Mary, John tells us in his account of this, that it was Mary, one of Jesus' closest friends and followers, takes a jar of expensive perfume and she pours it on Jesus' head, and John also tells us, on his feet. And she's doing this most likely to honor Jesus, to show her love for him, possibly some suggest even to get him ready for burial, though I don't know if she knew about that. And Judas and the disciples get mad because they feel that this expensive perfume could have been sold and the money given to the poor. Again, Jesus had taught on no less than five occasions before that that you need to prioritize the poor. And Jesus' response to all of this is very revealing and profound. Look at verses 10 through 11 of Matthew 26. It says, But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. I want you to focus on that phrase I highlighted there where it says you will always have the poor with you. This is echoing, Jesus is echoing Deuteronomy 15 verse 11 in which God told Israel the exact same thing. He said the poor will always be in your land. And so Jesus is simply again confirming something that Israel knew back in the Old Testament. And what you don't want to miss when you add this up together is that Jesus and now the Old Testament are telling us something very important about poverty. And that is that no matter how hard we try, now bear with me on this, 
It's suggesting that poverty will always be a reality in a fallen and sinful world. That no matter how hard we try, because we are so fallen, because social structures are fallen, because we're nowhere near perfect, that poverty, the poor, are always going to be with us. And though I'm going to suggest that the implication of this then from Jesus is, so, is that for, to keep us then focused on poverty, to keep that in our sights, we do want to pause first and simply note that the Bible does say you're never going to eradicate poverty this side of heaven. And isn't it interesting then, folks, that when you look at the economic and social and political history of the last 150 years in the western part of the world, and I mean Europe and America, you will notice some of the most significant and grand experiments designed to eliminate and erase poverty from some of the most powerful empires that have ever existed. In other words, if we've done one thing in the western part of the world in the last 150 years in trying to usher in modernity, what we have done is that we've worked very hard to try to develop various social structures to get rid of this idea or this reality of poverty. And so you got socialism in Denmark and Sweden. You got communism in Russia and China, at least as of 20 or 30 years ago. And then you have democratic republics like America, complete with a welfare state. And yet the reality is, is that none of these systems, isn't this interesting, have been able to effectively eliminate or erase poverty, none of them. And those I'll say in a minute, there is a big difference between a free market economy like America and communism. I mean, I'm going to vie for one over the other any day of the week. The reality is, is that neither of them, none of them, have been able to eradicate or erase poverty. Not with our New Deal after the Great Depression, not with our great welfare state. It's still staring us square in the face. You know, to be sure, I, I went to the Cato Institute's website this week, and I've known about this for years. The Cato Institute does a lot of study on economic issues and the impact of economic issues. And in 2004, they did a groundbreaking study in which they realized that in the previous 40 years in America, America, through its welfare state, now this will blow you away, has thrown $9 trillion at poverty in a 40-year period. People who say that we have never tried to deal with the issue of poverty from a governmental state level here in America don't know their facts. $9 trillion in a 40-year period up through 2004. And by the way, this includes Medicaid, food stamps, student lunch programs, scholarship aid to college students, Medicaid spending for the elderly, Medicaid coverage for the disabled. In fact, I found this kind of humorous. The Cato Institute did the math and suggested that if you just in 2004 gave $225,000 to everybody who qualified for poverty in that year, it would equal about $9 trillion, and let's try that as an experiment. In other words, $225,000. That might help for the next 40 years of poverty if you could get everybody out of poverty in 2004. But in a very real way, we tried that with $9 trillion given to poverty in our country. And I would argue we're one of the greatest countries, if not the greatest country in the world, even historically speaking. And what it shows us is that Jesus wasn't kidding. The poor you're always going to have with you. Because you look in rural areas today or urban areas today, 
And even after all the money we've pumped into it, we still have a huge issue with poverty. And as I suggested earlier, though some systems uh, to alleviate poverty are obviously better than others, I mean, I think we'd all agree here today that a free society that compassionately tries to care for the poor is better than a communist society that forces so-called equity on everyone. The fact still remains that even in our free, compassionate society, we still have needs all around us. We still have the poor. And please realize, folks, this doesn't mean, now I've got to make this very clear, because a lot of well-meaning Christians have messed this one up. This does not mean that we should stop trying to alleviate poverty. Not at all. It's actually the opposite. I believe that Jesus in the Bible tells us this, that the poor you always have with you, so that we will consistently try to help the poor, realizing that our task is never done this side of heaven. I think that's what Jesus is getting at in part in this passage. I mean, it's sad. People have used this phrase of Jesus, you always have the poor with you, somewhat out of context over the years. And I've actually heard well-meaning Christians say, well, hey, you know, the poor you're always going to have with you, kind of insinuating that maybe we shouldn't work so hard, that we should just give in to the reality that every time we fill the cup up, it's going to get empty again soon. And the logic of that would be like saying, well, my gas is just going to, my car is just going to go through the gas tank anyway, so why should I fill my gas tank? None of you would ever say that. You'd never say don't go to the gas pump just because in a week it's going to be empty again. In fact, you'd say the opposite. The mere fact that it's going to be empty means you better start thinking about how you're going to fill it again. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here when it comes to poverty. He's setting our expectations right, saying in a fallen world that's not your home, that's not as I originally designed it, read about that in Genesis 3, he's saying poverty is now going to be a staple in some ways and even more so in other ways. And to be sure, what he's saying here is to keep them then in your sights. I mean, he's talking at a poor house. He's, he's receiving love from a poor woman, woman. He's got lots of poor friends around. I can't believe that Jesus was dissing the poor with his statement here. I think he's saying that the poor you always have with you, so keep them in your sights. But, but, but get this, he's saying, right now in front of me is a woman who, who, who has this resource, and she loves me so much that even in the midst of all of the needs, she's going to use this resource to bring a little bit of comfort to the incarnate Son of God. That's the context of that passage. And so the first thing that you and I must realize in our journey this morning is that Jesus hung around those in need because he wants, us to, show, wants to show us that you're always going to have them with you. And so keep your sights on them. That's what I do. That's what I want you to do. Now, moving on, a second thing I want you to notice that Jesus teaches us about the poor, and this is arguably one of the most powerful things we're going to talk about today, is that the poor are blessed and they can teach us many things about God and this life. They're blessed and can teach us many things about God and this life. And you're saying, what's that about? Uh, we're looking at a lot of scriptures here today, but we need to because we're doing a, an old, a little survey here. Turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 6, and you'll see what I mean. Luke chapter 6. Jesus is just at the beginning of his preaching, teaching, healing ministry. He has just show, uh, chosen his 12 disciples, and his popularity is gaining greatly. And people are coming in droves to hear him and be healed by him and to be taught by him. And so he wants to share some key things right at the beginning of his ministry here with his disciples and others. And so listen to how he begins in verse 20 of Luke 6. Now, now dial into this. 
It says, And he, Jesus, lifted his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And again, one thing I'm glad about having being a Christian for 30 years and a pastor for 20 is I've heard every imaginable interpretation of this passage. And one of the most common is for people to say, well, this sounds awfully redundant to Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, where Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So Luke must have just forgot that in spirit thing. And so Jesus isn't really blessing the poor. He's just blessing those who are poor in spirit. The only problem with that is that if you consult the majority of commentators, they will point out that the Sermon on the Mount took place, in Matthew 5, took place on a mountain, while Luke tells us here that this is a Sermon on the Plain, that this took place when he came down from the mountain. Also, you notice that Matthew has eight Beatitudes. Luke only has four here. Matthew's Beatitudes are in the third person. Luke's are in the second person. Luke has more of a material, physical emphasis. Matthew has more of a spiritual one. And you finally end up going, I think these are two different sermons. I mean, same topic in some ways, but two very different sermons. And once you get that far, you realize that you need to take Jesus' words literally here. He is literally saying, blessed are you who are poor, not poor in spirit, but poor we got to ask, what does he mean by that? I mean, can you imagine going down to the Salvation Army tomorrow or the welfare office and looking at everybody in line there and saying, man, I just got to tell you, you are so blessed. You have no idea how blessed you are. I was in a sermon yesterday. And the pastor said you are blessed, and I'm just here to announce to you that you are blessed. They, they would either be dismissive of you, they might even hit you. I mean, it would be just a cruel thing to say to somebody in the welfare line, you're blessed. And yet, in a sense, that's what Jesus is saying here. And so what's he getting at? I don't think Jesus is necessarily blessing poverty itself here. I don't think he's even blessing a particular social class, no. What I believe that Jesus is getting at here, now don't miss this, is that a lack of material goods in one's life, as much as we try to need to try to alleviate that because that can lead to some very bad things, but, but when that reality hits certain people at certain times in their life, God is still there. And he provides a blessing even in the midst of difficult need. And in this particular case, the blessing that he provides is that people will not be tempted to rely on their things, but will be more apt to rely on God. It's just like I said to a thousand people after 2008, even here in Scottsdale, when people were talking to me about all that they lost, I said, well, don't ever forget, God is a God of provision. And he always provides for his people. Not a sparrow falls to the ground outside of his knowledge. Every hair on your head is numbered. And he says, look at the field and the grass and the flowers. If they're arrayed like that, I love you even more. And God will take care of you. And yet it's hard to hear that, isn't it, when you're surrounded by wealth. It's hard to hear that when your life is doing really good and you have no needs nor no cares. And so what Jesus is getting at here is that there's something about not having material things, even at times when we are poor, that gives you an edge up spiritually when it comes to trusting and depending on God. And what you need to know is that the Bible affirms this over and over again. In fact, the Old Testament consistently ties together poverty with piety. 
Psalm 40, verse 17 says, Yet I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Oh, my God, do not delay. And then Psalm 70, verse 5, Yet I am poor and needy. Come quickly to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. I mean, when you think about it, folks, isn't this just true for you and me in our lives that we look back at times where we didn't have much, but we were super rich in spirit? Can any of you relate to those days? Kim and I grew up in fairly good middle-class families, but when we went off to college and then grad school and then got out, our parents basically, because they're from the old school, said, bye. In fact, my dad used to say, you know, when I got called home, I kid you not, I called home during my senior year of my graduate program, and I said, you know, I'm thinking of coming home for a few weeks. And he said, well, that's okay, but I want you to know something. Your home is not here now. I heard my mom in the background saying, oh, Frank. But he said, no, I'm serious. <laughs> he said, I just want, my dad was always like, he said, Jamie, I just got to let you know, your home is not here. He said, and so from now on, when you come home, you need to ask if you can come visit our home. I thought, wow, well, I'm not coming then, Dad, you know. And, but, but what was my dad doing there in kind of a harsh way? He was trying to say, you're on your own, kid, and you got to make it on your own. And so Kim and I did. When we first got married, we lived in, a, like many of you, we lived above a four-car garage in Barrington, Illinois, while I was an a, 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 a intern at Willow Creek Community Church. And I'll never forget one night we were watching TV and on the news, and it, and it listed what the poverty level was that year. I think it was like anybody making below $16,000 a year is poverty level. And I looked over at Kim. We had the TV trays. Remember those little metal TV trays? We're having dinner. I looked over at Kim, and I said, we're in poverty. I said, we don't, we don't, I'm not getting making 16000 a year, and neither are you. Together, we're in poverty. And we used to sing to each other at that time when Hannah was born. We used to sing that great old country song, even though I ain't got money, I'm so in love with you, honey. And Kim and I look, I know, I'm a romantic at heart, aren't I? And so we, we just look back on those days, and we were so full of faith. We were so full of energy and vision and excitement and on fire for Jesus Christ. And I sometimes wonder what happened to it. How about you? I, I sometimes wonder if uh, making it in the church realm and, and making it within the society I live hasn't sometimes robbed me of what C.S. Lewis calls that first fervor, that, that, that joy. There are times I wake up and I wonder, have I just sold out? There's times where I wonder, where has the zest and the zeal gone? Am I just in a rut? Am I just going through the motions? I know you guys think the same things. And as I evaluate that aspect of my life, and I do it rather regularly, I, I realize that the contentment, now don't miss this, that the contentment that I have in my life materially tempts me to not have to depend on God. Can you own that with me? It just makes sense. Jesus made it very clear. That's one of the great temptations for those of us who have been blessed on the other end, is that we're robbed of the blessing of having to trust God in overt ways in our lives. If you don't believe me, look at how James says this to us in inarguable language. I mean, most theologians can't even weasel out of this passage. Look at James chapter 2, verse 5. He says, listen, my... Give me a click here, guys. He says, listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. He has, folks. He has promised you and me. 
At times when we'll realize, as we'll see in a second here, our poverty of spirit, even though because we don't want to force poverty on us, but our poverty of spirit, that, that we can share a similar blessing that those who are poor in our world have. And that's to experience God and his provision in profound ways. And don't hear me wrong. This is not to suggest that we should voluntarily seek poverty. I do think we need to voluntarily seek simplicity. I do think some of us need to say no to ourselves materially more than we say yes. In fact, that was great advice that was given to me by a pastor friend when I started to, to get more successful in the Detroit days when I was there. And I remember Gary once said to me, he said, I said, Gary, how do you prevent yourself falling into the gross point trap of just all the wealth and material stuff around you? And he said, that's easy, Jamie. I just make sure that every week I say no to myself more often than I say yes when it comes to things that I want. I thought that was rather profound, uh, to just catch your spirit. And don't just say yes to everything around you. Voluntary simplicity is a good thing. Now, now having said that, I'm not saying that we should, should voluntarily choose poverty. Some Christians say that. I'm not sure that's what Jesus is getting at here. I think what Jesus is getting at for you and me here is that somehow we need to find this blessing that God gives to the poor and that by hanging around them and ministering to them, we might just see what a great God of provision God is. And he'll even use us in the process. You know, I'm going to read for you in a list here in just a minute about all the, the, the different things that Scottsdale Bible Church is doing to help minister to those in need. Because we are. This is not a shame message. It's not a guilt message. This is hopefully an inspirational message for you and I to get more involved with the poor for various reasons. But I challenge you to talk to anybody here in our church who's involved in various ministries, either in this church or in our community, Ministries like Neighborhood Ministries or the Phoenix Rescue Mission or Matthew 25 or St. Mary's Food Bank, whatever it might be, or prison ministry, and ask them, what have rubbing shoulders with people out in the community who have obvious needs taught you? What has that taught you about God and the spiritual life? And just be ready to sit down for a Starbucks for a while. Because anybody that rubs shoulders with those in need in our community here in Phoenix or around the world will tell you that you will meet men and women of such incredible faith, of such incredible, incredible belief in God and his provision that it will encourage you and challenge you in your own walk with him. And that's exactly the way it's supposed to work. That you and I need to pattern our lives after Jesus and not shy away based on guilt or escapism or whatever it might be for us in ministering to those around us who have needs. Because when we do so, we don't just keep them in our sights and help them, but we also learn from them. Because there's a blessing in their lives that can even bless us. And then lastly, because we're out of time and with this one we're done, the third thing that Jesus teaches us of why he hung around the poor is that we receive a great reward by ministering to and with the poor. In other words, let's just put it this way, folks. God smiles on us when we obey him in this area. Proverbs 19, verse 17 says, He who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deed. I think that proverb was just a, a, a foretaste of what Jesus would teach us in Matthew 25, verse 40, when at the end of one of his great parables, he says, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, meaning the poor, the sick, and those in prison, you did it to me. There's great reward, God says, both in this life and the next, 
for following him and Jesus' pattern and pouring into the poor. And so what do we do with this today? Uh, Two things as we close off our service here this morning. First, I I think if you're hearing the word right, we need to be drawn more to the poor. I I think as a church and as a group of people, each of us individually, we need to reevaluate our lives and how much we're really pouring into those in need. It was about three years ago when I was just been here about a year and I was being asked to be on numerous boards because I pastor a large church and and I was saying no to many of them because I want my, my first energies to go to Scottsdale Bible Church and nothing more. And then somebody in this congregation approached me and said, how about St. Mary's Food Bank? I'd never heard of St. Mary's Food Bank. I'm from Cleveland. And St. Mary's Food Bank is a, is a Phoenix thing. And I thought, the board of St. Mary's Food Bank, and something in me, and I now know it was the Holy Spirit, nudged me just to consider it. And so I met with the executive director, a guy by the name of Terry Shannon of St. Mary's Food Bank, and found out that they're the largest food bank in the United States of America right now. With over 600 agency partners, all St. Mary's does is get food from all over the place, farmers and fries when their food, you know, it can't be sold to you, but it's still good and all that. And, and, and they get, get this, they get about 80, 000, 80 million pounds of food a year from various places, and then distributed all throughout the state of Arizona. And I remember the minute I heard that, I thought, that's something I want to be a part of. That is cool. And for the last three years, I've been serving on the board and volunteering at St. Mary's Food Bank. Here's one of the cool things about our church, is that the story I just told you is told a thousand times and in a thousand ways in our church. We have volunteers at Neighborhood Ministries. We have volunteers working with Burma refugees. But we have people who work in prison ministry, Phoenix Rescue Mission, Matthew 25. We have people all the time going over to Tanzania and the Middle East. In Tanzania, we've dug two wells and started schools, and we support 500 children on a regular basis. Many of you give a lot of money to our elders fund, which helps hundreds of people every year. We give away shoes, winter coats, water in the summer. We do special projects like we did with helping with Haiti. Those are just things off the top of my head. Now, now the reason I mentioned to you those things is not to brag, but simply make this point, is that if you're looking to get more involved with the poor around you, your church can help you. Your church can help you. One of the things that I love about Scottsdale Bible Church, and one of the reasons I came here four years ago, is that this church has a healthy track record of hearing Jesus' call to not be just a wealthy suburban church, but to be a church that uses its resources to pour into those in need. And there's a great legacy here. We're celebrating 50 years next year of God doing that here. And so what that means for all of us here is that none of us are without excuse. There's so many opportunities here at your church to get involved with the poor. I don't know if you noticed it in your bulletin, but we're doing Christmas in the Barrio next week. That's where we go down to the inner city and throw a big Christmas party complete with food and gifts for those in need in the city. It takes hundreds of volunteers to put that on. Maybe you. And there's lots of opportunities all the time in our church to do that. And so be drawn to the poor. Because as you do, and here's your last thought, as you do, it just might help you get in touch with your own poverty. You know, one of the biggest dangers of being a wealthy church is, is that we fall into the trap of Revelation chapter 3. Look up here on the screen. I smile at this because God loves us so much. He doesn't mind whacking us over the head with this one. It says, for you say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Don't you just love God? 
He is not fooled by any of y'all here this morning. He's not fooled by your outward appearance. He's not fooled by your nice car. He's not fooled by how you approach your neighbor here this morning. He's not fooled with the handshake that you give. He knows the state of your soul. And he knows that without his grace, that's what this whole year has been, that you're just an, you're one accident away from being a mess. And he loves you so much that he says, don't read your own press releases. Don't read those things. Read what my word says about you. Hang around the poor. Get in touch with the state of your soul. And then rely on my grace. Because my grace is so powerful. It's so good. It can help make you what I want you to become. You guys have been great today. We went over. We got a whole other crowd coming in here next. And so we need to make room for them. But, but just think and chew on what we talked about here today. The whole idea of those in need around you, they're there. You're always going to have them with you. So keep them in your sights. And the fact that they can teach you many things because they're blessed in ways that some of us aren't and that we do have an obligation, but it's a joy and it's a privilege to pour into them. What are you doing to do that? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and for your goodness. And thank you, Lord, that even when it comes to a subject like this, dealing with the poverty, the things around us, you give us great hope. And yet, Lord, I thank you that you pin a lot of that hope on us, the church, and that you say to us as a church, don't ever give up, don't ever give up prioritizing and pouring into those with needs around you. And so, God, we won't as a church. I'm, I'm grateful for the legacy of this church and for uh, what, what many have done over the years to make sure that we prioritize those in need in our community. And we will continue to do that, Father. And I pray that as we do, that you'd help all of us to do our part, to keep our sights on the kind of life that Jesus lived so that we might live a similar one. And God, as we do that, may we experience the blessing that you have for us and certainly for those around us. So we'll follow you. We thank you for your grace, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.